Our text for the sermon will be, is taken from Ezekiel 1, verse 28b, which we'll read now. Ezekiel 1, verse 28b. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So far. The sermon for this morning was prepared by Reverend Clarence Bauman while serving as minister of the Yarrow Canadian Reformed Church. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and I have never seen God. Ezekiel did and he fell flat on his face. That's intriguing. Though we do not see God, we believe on the authority of scripture itself that the Lord is never absent from us. He, always, he is always present with his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit. We confess this in Lord's Day 18. But be knocked off our feet by the awareness of his presence? No, we're not. We keep on doing the bits and pieces that make up our daily lives, including what's obedience to God's law as well as what's not obedience to God's law. In a word, we take God for granted. Now this may be understandable. Life, after all, has its own bits of busyness to absorb our attention. And so the idea that God is with us sticks with us but floats to the back of our minds. And so life carries on. So it was too for Ezekiel and the exiles that were with him in Babylon. But when the God who never forsakes his own revealed himself to Ezekiel for who he was, well, yes, it blew Ezekiel well and truly off his feet. It hit him like a brick. What an amazing God he had. This revelation is preserved in scripture for our edification and instruction today so I summarize the sermon with this theme. God confronts a destitute exile with his glorious majesty. The setting for God's self-revelation. Second, the substance of God's self-revelation. And third, the comfort of God's self-revelation. First off, the setting for God's self-revelation. God himself revealed, God revealed himself to Ezekiel. Who congregation was Ezekiel? Where was he? Apart from a couple of biographical details mentioned in the course of Ezekiel's book, for example, he had a house and a wife, we know nothing about the man except what is mentioned in verses 1 to 3 of our chapter. Here we learn that Ezekiel was an exile from Jerusalem, forced to live by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians as per verse 3. We also learn that his father was a priest named Buzai. For the rest, the Bible nowhere mentions Ezekiel. In the course of church history, our church fathers struggled to come to grips with Ezekiel's prophecy. Luther showed little interest in Ezekiel's prophecy. And even Calvin, though he prepared commentaries on most of the books of the Bible, left his treatment of Ezekiel to the very end of his life. In fact, Calvin was at chapter 20 when he died, 
There is a reason why people are reluctant to study the book of Ezekiel. The prophet begins his book by relating a vision so bizarre that we are left wondering what to make of it. As one gets further into the book, one is taken aback by Ezekiel's relentless criticisms of his fellow Jews, taken aback too by his unconventional, not to say impossible, behavior. Imagine eating a book, as we read in chapter 3, or lying on your side for 390 days and then rolling over on your other side for 40 more days. Chapter 4. On top of that, Ezekiel took no stock of culturally sensitive language, let alone being politically correct in his formulations. Ezekiel can be blunt and very, very crude. He certainly does not come across as a polished and sensitive leader. Result? The book of Ezekiel is not an attractive read for us. Despite all that congregation, this book is part of the Word of God, given for our instruction as we walk the roads of life, so we do well to pay attention to what the Lord has to say about himself in this book. Ezekiel, says verse 3, lived in the land of the Babylonians. That is very noteworthy. The land of Babylon is the very same part of God's world that is described in Genesis 11, which we previously read, as the land of the Chaldeans. In fact, it was specifically out of the land of the Chaldeans that the Lord had called Israel's ancestor Abram, Acts 7 verse 2 and Genesis 11 verse 27 and following. You recall God called Abram away from his father's house and his father's gods. That will be the gods of the Chaldeans. Promised to give Abram his own land and through it make him a blessing to all nations. How did it happen then that Abraham's descendant Ezekiel was back in the land of the Chaldeans? In verse 2, reference is made to the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. From the books of Kings and Chronicles, we learn that Jehoiachin was king on David's throne in Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar captured the city. 2 Kings 24 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar carried out from Jerusalem all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He also carried into captivity all Jerusalem all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Verses 13 and following. Ezekiel was one of those inhabitants of Jerusalem now carted off into exile. This descendant of Abraham, then, was in the land of the Chaldeans distinctly against his own wishes. He'd lost his inheritance in the land of promise, was now a destitute and landless refugee in the land from which God had called his father. Why had Ezekiel and so many of his brethren with him been dragged off into exile? Was God not big enough to keep the promises he had made to his father Abraham? The answer lies in the wonderful and awful reality of God's faithfulness. You recall God established his covenant of grace with Abraham and repeated the same covenant with Israel. He promised his people that if they would diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, then the Lord would bless his people abundantly. Similarly, if they would not obey the voice of the Lord to serve carefully all of his commandments, the Lord would curse. 
Amongst the curses mentioned, as we read in Deuteronomy 28, is also this one. The Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. You shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods. Verses 63 and following. Over the course of many years, Abraham's offspring did precisely what God forbade. Though the Lord sent prophets to warn his people, they continued in their sins. So the Lord, faithful as he is to the promises that he made in his covenant, sent them out of the land of their inheritance back to where their ancestors had come from. For our part, congregation, we need to be aware of how devastating this exile was for the pious in Israel. Of course, every Israelite was financially devastated by the destruction of their homes and their business and being dragged off as nobodies into a strange land. But let's leave the economic impact aside for now. The spiritual impact can be scarcely underestimated for those who sought to serve the Lord, as Ezekiel apparently did. Every God-fearing Israelite knew that God had long ago ordained Jerusalem as the place where he would live among his people. Psalm 132, verse 13. In the temple. Here the sacrifices were made which proclaimed the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. That's why the saints could rejoice when they heard the invitation to come to Jerusalem's temple. We read this in Psalm 122. And it was known too, through the gospel of the temple, the Lord would make Israel to be a blessing for the nations. But see, Ezekiel and the other exiles could not go to the temple anymore. They'd been expelled from the promised land. God cast them out of their inheritance, away from his dwelling place, away from his presence, away from the proclamation of the gospel. Try, brothers and sisters, to grasp what sort of questions this terrible reality raised in their minds. Did this mean that God had rejected them? All the years of privilege, the centuries of being God's people with rich promises, did their return to the land of Father Abraham with its paganism not mean the end of God's special care for them? He dumped them, jilted his people. And whose fault was that? Their own? Or... Or might it be that their sins weren't so bad as to deserve exile, but that their God was too weak to protect them? Ezekiel was born into a family of priests. As soon as he turned 30 years of age, as we read Numbers 4, verse 3, he was by God's ordinance to serve as a priest in the temple, charged to perform the sacrifices and so to preach the gospel of God's grace to sinners but here he was now in exile among the captives, without gospel, without God, without hope, without future. We can empathize with this man. But behold, in such a setting of such rejection, Ezekiel saw. What did he see? This takes us to our second point. The substance of God's self-revelation. The vision starts off at a distance in verse 4. Out of the north comes this storm, this windstorm, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. As the whirlwind came nearer to Ezekiel in the land of the Chaldeans, the dejected exile could make out some more detail. At eye level, he saw 
verse 5, the likeness of four living creatures. On the earth, below eye level, were wheels associated with the four living creatures, verse 15. When Ezekiel raised his eyes above the living creatures, verse 22, the likeness of a firmament. On top of that firmament, verse 26, was the likeness of a throne. And on the likeness of the throne was the likeness with the appearance of a man high above it, God. We need to understand God does not reveal himself directly to Ezekiel, but shows himself first a whirlwind in the distance, then details of living creatures, firmament, and a throne in that order, before causing the vision to climax in God himself. And it's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God that caused Ezekiel to fall on his face. Why did God not reveal himself directly to Ezekiel? Why the various steps along the way? Here we need to realize, brothers and sisters, that God showed Ezekiel this whirlwind, these living creatures and the firmament, not for the sake of the whirlwind or the living creatures or the firmament. These in-between steps serve to point up who the God is that has come to Ezekiel in the land of the Chaldeans. To get a sense of the awe that struck Ezekiel when he saw the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord we need to pick up on some of the details of this vision. First, the whirlwind. Ezekiel sees a whirlwind coming out of the north, verse 4. The Lord God has used a whirlwind in the past to show that God is present. We can read in Job 38 that God answered Job out of the whirlwind. God took Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, 2 Kings 2, verse 1 and 11. The point is, by showing a whirlwind to this destitute exile in the land of the Chaldeans, God was telling Ezekiel that he was there. God underlined that message in further details. Ezekiel sees the whirlwind as a great cloud with a raging fire engulfing itself. A great cloud with a fire. Our thoughts go to Israel's exodus from Egypt when the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Exodus 13, verse 21. The cloud and the fire symbolized God's presence with his people. We can also think of the time God called Moses out from the burning bush. Exodus 3, verse 2. Again, the fire symbolized God's presence. And think of the time the Lord established his covenant with Israel on Mount Sinai. He indicated his presence with his people at the covenant-making ceremony by means of fire and smoke on the mountain. Exodus 19. That Ezekiel now sees a great cloud with a raging fire engulfing itself is then a direct message for the exile in Babylon. Here God was coming to the exiles. Ezekiel adds a couple of elements not found in earlier revelations of God, for he says in verse 4 that brightness was all around it and that the color was like the color of amber. The reference to brightness and to amber comment on the intensity of what Ezekiel saw. The fire was not dull, as in covered with smoke or burning with many impurities. The fire was rather bright, deep orange pure fire, God in his holiness and majesty now present in the land of the Babylonians. This whirlwind 
this cloud, God, comes out of the north. Israel, Jerusalem, is due west of Babylon. But to get from one place to the other, you can't travel due west or due east, since there's a harsh desert between Israel and Babylon. So all travel went via a loop to the north. Jeremiah 1 verse 14. That's how Father Abraham traveled the route to the land that God promised to give him, and that's how Ezekiel and the other exiles with him traveled back to the land of the Chaldeans. They entered Babylon from the north. Now Ezekiel sees visions of God coming out of the north, and that's simply to say that the, God, that the Lord is traveling via the known route from Jerusalem to Babylon. We catch the message, the God of majesty, Israel's God by covenant, was coming to his people in exile. Next, we'll look at the living creatures. As the vision of God came closer, Ezekiel saw more detail. Yes, it was a vision of God, but no, the Lord did not directly show himself to this exile. God first had Ezekiel see the four living creatures at eye level. He tells us much detail about these living creatures, so we could say much about them too. Their legs, their hands, their wings, their faces and their wheels. I don't have time to go into all the details, but a couple of aspects are significant in relation to the vision of God. The first is that these four are creatures. That is to say, they were created in the beginning when God made the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 verse 1. These creatures are not eternal, they are not divine, but they are finite, limited, at the same time, we need to note that they are not of this earth. Notice how often Ezekiel uses the word likeness and the word appearance. Ezekiel wants to describe these four creatures and of necessity he has to use earthly terms because that's all Ezekiel and his readers would be used to. But he can't find fitting comparisons on God's earth to describe these residents from heaven. That's why we should not try to draw pictures of these creatures either. Let's instead content ourselves with the knowledge that these living creatures had all the gifts that they needed, including wings and hands, faces and legs and wheels, to carry out the perfection, to perfection, the task that God had assigned them. This is the point. The God who comes to the exiles in Babylon is so great that he comes with majestic servants, each of who do precisely the bidding of their master and their maker. Notice verse 12. These living creatures went wherever the Spirit wanted to go. This is the Holy Spirit. This is God's Spirit giving instructions to the living creatures. Further, as servants of God laboring in the presence of God, the creatures also reflect some of the glory of their master. Verse 7. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. And verse 13. Their appearance was like burning coals of fire. As something of God's glory rubbed off on Moses' face when he came away from the presence of God, Exodus 34, verse 29 and following, so something of the glory of God these creatures were serving rubbed off on these servants of the Most High. All of it together impresses upon Ezekiel the greatness and the glory of the God who came out of the north. But just how were these living creatures serving? What were they doing in this vision? They appear here, congregation, literally under God. Above them was a firmament, 
and above the firmament was something like a throne, and high above the throne was God himself. That is to say, the living creatures are depicted here as carrying God, transporting God. Here is the same picture as David had earlier described in Psalm 18. He said of God, He bowed the heavens also and came down, and he rode upon a cherub and flew. Psalm 18, verse 9 and following. These living creatures, Ezekiel tells us in chapter 10 that they are cherubim, are here doing what God had earlier said of God. Here doing what David, sorry, had earlier said of God. Using their wings and their wheels, these servants of God carry the Almighty from Jerusalem to the land of exile. And that again serves to point up something of the splendor of the God who came to visit the exiles. What a God of glory he is. We'll look at the firmament and the throne next. That message is driven home further for Ezekiel as he lifted his eyes above eye level. He saw above the heads of these servants of God the likeness of the firmament. This firmament was a divider separating the creatures underneath from the presence of God above. The divider is a ceiling for the servants but a floor for the Almighty. Exodus 24 verse 10. The fact that there's a divider between the living creatures and the throne serves to point up again the greatness of the God on the throne. The creatures are but creatures, created being, but God too great to have mere creatures so close to his presence. And yet, and this is again the marvel, this great God comes to his covenant people in their exile. Servants must keep a distance, but God comes to his children by covenant. From above the firmament, Ezekiel heard a thunderous voice, verse 24. Here I need to tell you that Ezekiel uses the same word five times in verse 24, a word that's translated three different ways in our translation. Words for noise, noise, voice, tumult, and again noise. In Hebrew, all the same word that means a thunderous voice. This thunderous voice is the sound of the Almighty, and it's a concept that Ezekiel would be familiar with. After their fall into sin, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God in the garden, Genesis 3, verse 8. And here the word sound translates the same Hebrew word as our chapter. The result of hearing this sound was that Adam and Eve ran to hide themselves. Such was their fear of God. It's the same word we find in Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Verse 3. Result, the cedars break, the wilderness shake, and the deer give birth. Verses 5 and following. That is, the voice of the Lord produces terror. God comes, and who can stand before him? Well, now, as Ezekiel's attention is drawn to the firmament and what is above it, he hears the thunderous voice of God and that's to say he's confronted with a God terrifying in his majesty. What a God is this? Then he sees the likeness of a throne in appearance like a sapphire stone. Exodus 24 verse 9. And on the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. Notice again how Ezekiel struggles to find words that describe what he sees. He doesn't see a throne but he sees the likeness of a throne. And he doesn't see a man, 
but he sees the likeness of the appearance of a man. Earthly terms simply don't do justice to the majesty he sees, and the man high above it has again the descriptions of verse 4, the color of amber, the appearance of fire, and brightness all around, all references to the greatness and majesty of God. And he couldn't help but see it, as an eye can't help but notice a splendid rainbow in an overcast sky and marvel at its beauty, so the brightness of God's shining stood out to grab Ezekiel's attention. He couldn't get away from it. Here was the king of the world, the God of glory, Yahweh, Israel's God by covenant, awesome, majestic, splendid beyond words. The living creatures with their wings and their wheels and their faces, the firmament and the likeness of a throne, the splendor of these things around God climaxed in the stunning vision of the man high above it, awesome in glory, so awesome that Ezekiel fell on his face. This brings us to our last point, the message of God's self-revelation. What, brothers and sisters, did God communicate to Ezekiel through the revela- this revelation of himself? As he came to his people by covenant in the land of their exile, what was he saying about himself? There is first all this. Israel's God remained awesome in majesty. The point is important. Babylon had defeated Jerusalem, but that's to say to the minds of the people of the day, Babylon's God, uh, his name was Marduk, is stronger than Israel's God. But God is emphatic that it is not so. The God of Israel defeated but a small God? No, no. Behold his splendor, carried by servants, possessing a glory too bright to behold, speaking in a voice that fills with terror. How awesome is he, and therefore how worthy of praise. But more importantly, this sovereign and glorious God has not forgotten the people of his covenant. Oh yes, this people have been dragged off into exile and now live far away from God's dwelling place in that temple. In the land of Babylon, they feel lost, rejected by God. But see, they weren't. See, he comes. And he comes to his people in exile, not with his tail between his legs as to offer his people an apology for letting them down in the day of their distress. No, he comes with majesty and splendor exactly because their exile was his punishment on their sins. That punishment was not an expression of rejection, but the chastising of a father who loves his children. See also Proverbs 3, verse 11. This father by covenant now comes in terrible majesty, but not to unload another ton of affliction on his sinful children. Psalm 30, we read, His anger is but for a moment, his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Verse 5. Though he comes in awesome majesty, God's coming was first of all mercy. Notice that though Ezekiel is so overwhelmed as to fall flat on his face in worship, God spares this creature's, this sinner's life. Truly what a God is this. Yet, even that is not all. When the Lord had called Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans years ago, he'd said, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, as we read in Genesis 12, verse 3. With their return to the land of Babylon, 
one would conclude that these destitute exiles could in no way be a blessing for the nations any longer. But this glorious God is faithful to his promise, and so he visited his people in exile because a remnant must survive so that the Savior of the world could one day be born. So it happened. When the time had fully come, the promised Savior was born. No, not in the land of the Chaldeans, but in the land God had promised as an inheritance to Abraham's descendants. But have you noticed, congregation, that Jesus' ancestry included one of Ezekiel's fellow exiles? Verse 2. One of those in exile with Ezekiel was none less than the king of Judah, the heir to David's promises, King Jehoiachin. But the fact of this exile doesn't mean the end for God's promises. This Jehoiachin is mentioned in Matthew 1 in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Here is God's grace. He promised to send the Savior into the world, and he'd said the Savior would come from David's line. And so God saw to it that the exiles were not forgotten. God's plan of salvation had come to pass. Salvation for the exiles, salvation for the Jews, salvation for the world, salvation for you and I. And that ultimately is why he came in person to the exiles in their misery. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of this God of glory. The exiles forgotten? No, never. At the time of his choosing, God's, Israel's God by covenant came to his own to remind them of his faithfulness to his promises, remind them of his mercy. How encouraging for them. And nothing has changed on this point since then. The son of Jehoiachin was born, true God and true man, a blessing to the nations. No, the world did not see the majesty of God as revealed in Ezekiel 1, when the Son of God became flesh in Bethlehem. Only the shepherds heard the living creatures, the angels, sing their songs of glory. His splendor was not evident either when he hung on the cross in Calvary. And this time, the living creatures neither sang their praises nor fought for the Master's honor. The Son of God hid, as it were, his glorious majesty so that his time in the flesh was without whirlwind and fire, without servants in the form of living creatures, or even a firmament separating holy God from his creatures. In fact, the Creator became a creature in order that he might save a people for himself. And see, the majesty and the splendor belonging to the Son of God were restored to him. John saw a vision. Revelation 4, that has so many similarities with the vision that Ezekiel saw, yet in one particular point, it's different. For John sees 24 thrones placed around the throne of God Almighty, upon which sit 24 elders. These 24 elders represent the people of God from the old dispensation and from the new. Twelve from the old, symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and 12 from the new, representing the work of the Twelve Apostles. The Catholic Church, the people of God from every tribe and tongue and race are in the presence of God, creatures in the proximity of the Creator. What was outlined vaguely in Ezekiel's vision, that God came to his people by covenant to obtain their salvation, is now fulfilled. Redeemed sinners in the presence of God. God's people forgotten by God? 
To our sinful hearts it may seem so, but beloved of the Lord, it is never so. With respect to his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, the God of glory is never absent from his own. It is a reality our naked eye might not see, but a reality nevertheless. That is why we can be confident in the trials of life. The God of infinite majesty is with us always. Amen.